0: Left off in episode 6, we had just learned that the core of the prosecution's case against Jeffrey MacDonald, Paul Stombaugh's pajama top reconstruction, was a con, documents to which neither the jurors nor the defense team had access in 1979 and which were obtained through FOIA requests years after MacDonald's conviction disclosed that Stombaugh's own notes from 1971 falsified his findings from 1974, which he put before the jury in 1979. Even had Stombaugh's experiment proven valid, it would only have demonstrated that McDonald's pajama top could be folded such that its 48 holes could be superimposed upon the 21 holes in his wife's chest not that it had been so folded on the morning of the murders, a proposition for which the prosecution provided no supporting evidence and which the crime scene photographs and testimony appeared to negate. But, in fact, the experiment didn't even demonstrate that the pajama top could, in some possible world, be so folded. It is interesting in that light to note that the Pajama Top experiment was not only the prosecution's evidentiary centerpiece, but also McGuinness's dramatic centerpiece. Fatal Vision thus featured a kind of narrative inversion. It presented matters of minimal empirical significance with maximal dramatic emphasis. The Pajama Top was only one instance of this inversion, and McGinnis sometimes went the other way, presenting matters of maximal empirical significance with minimal dramatic emphasis. Consider, for example, this passage.
1: Back in court, the prosecution played a tape recording of the April 6, 1970 interview. This was an event which marked for more than one member of the jury the end of the presumption of innocence.
0: McGinnis here refers to the audio recording of McDonald's original interview with the CID's Grebner, Shaw, and Ivory, an interview he entered on the assumption he would be aiding the search for the murderers, and exited on the understanding that he was now the CID's chief suspect. In episode one, we heard part of this interview, wherein McDonald recounted the night of February 16th and 17th for the three investigators. McGinnis, in the passage I just quoted, informs his reader that a number of jurors stopped granting McDonald the presumption of innocence after they heard the April
1: 1970 interview. He elaborates. Until I heard that, a juror would comment later, there was no doubt in my mind about his innocence. All the evidence had just seemed confusing. But hearing him turned the whole thing around. I began to look at everything in a whole new way. There was something about the sound of his voice kind of hesitation. He just didn't sound like a man telling the truth. Besides, I don't think someone who just lost his wife the way he said he did would have sat there and complained that her kitchen drawers had been a mess.
0: McGinnis continued.
1: There was a cockiness, another juror said. Arrogance, when there should not have been arrogance. It was so different from what I think my own attitude would have been under the same circumstances that it just started me wondering what kind of man he really was. After the tape, I started to believe he could have done it. And once you start to believe that, with all the evidence the government had, it's not a big step to believing that he did it.
0: The words just quoted were the sum total McGinnis allotted to this episode in Fatal Vision. They fit into three paragraphs. He related them as a matter of passing interest. And, of course, in the larger context of Fatal Vision, they simply alerted the reader to the fact that the jury had finally caught up to what the reader had known for chapters that behind the mask of sanity he wore, Jeffrey McDonald was a psychopath. In fact, however, this little anecdote about the jury's impression of MacDonald should have been one of Fatal Vision's central preoccupations. It indicated that the evidence upon which McGuinness hung so much of his narrative was, for some number of jurors, not the key that unlocked their guilty verdict. As the first juror McGuinness quoted confessed, the evidence just seemed confusing. What convinced this juror was, rather, the sound of McDonald's voice and the fact that he didn't sound like a man telling the truth. Likewise, the second juror only registered the supposed weight of the evidence against McDonald after he heard the April 1970 recording, on which MacDonald reportedly sounded arrogant and cocky. For these two jurors at least, either one of whom could have hung the jury, MacDonald's affect was what did him in not the evidence. He didn't sound innocent. I'm Matthew Craig Kelly. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. And the wheel
2: of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be
0: determined by whether the American people have the moral Four.
1: The
0: great silent majority. Castle, drive. Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast this episode features Brian Kovalt as Joe McGinnis and Neil Bledsoe as James Blackburn. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at thelookingglass_podcast. underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. Follow us on YouTube and TikTok at TheLookingGlassTrueCrime. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. We appreciate your support. And so we must ask, what does an innocent person sound like? This seems like a straightforward question, but in trying to answer it, we run headlong into a paradox. To begin with, a person may reply that the question is misconceived. It's a bad question, because innocent people don't sound any one way. They sound lots of ways, as do guilty people. This is an excellent point, and we all know it to be true, because we all know that there is such a thing as a bad liar. Bad liars cannot lie convincingly. They give themselves away at every turn. They fidget and sweat and avert their eyes. They stumble over their words and contradict themselves. They are, in a word, obviously lying. Good liars, by contrast, are very convincing. They are calm, cool, and collected. They look you in the eye and don't blink. They sound certain of themselves, like they have nothing to hide. They sound just like someone who is telling the truth. But therein lies the paradox. To the question, what does an innocent person sound like? We can answer, they sound calm, composed, not at all nervous, and so on. But, as we've just acknowledged, sometimes people who are not innocent sound the same way. So that isn't what an innocent person sounds like. It is, rather, our idea of what an innocent person sounds like. And that is a problem. Tim Levine, a professor of psychology from the University of Alabama, and the author of *Duped: Truth Default Theory and the Social Science of Lying and Deception, refers to this as the problem of mismatched senders. The sender is just the person uttering a statement or series of statements. A person who is telling the truth and also sounds like they are telling the truth, or rather sounds like our idea of someone who is telling the truth, is a matched sender. Their affect matches our idea of what it ought to be. By contrast, a person who is telling the truth but who sounds like someone who is lying is a mismatched sender. The same goes for the reverse scenarios. A person who is lying and who sounds like a liar is a matched sender. A person who is lying but who sounds like a truth-teller is a mismatched sender. And what is the problem of mismatched senders? The problem is that we are terrible at spotting them. As a host of peer-reviewed studies demonstrate, people's ability to identify liars hovers at a little above 50%. That is, a little above chance. Ponder that fact for a minute, and while you do, Think about the number of times you have heard or said things like, she's lying, you can just see it. I'm really good at spotting liars. Or, as Chris Isaacs sang, I know when somebody's lying. Okay, you might say, but what about trained professionals? CIA and FBI interrogators, for example. What about these videos I see on YouTube with titles like Body Language of a Liar, Ten Ways You Can Spot a Liar with Body Language, and Seven Subtle Body Language Signs of Lying. Isn't there an expansive pool of research mapping out the physical cues of deception? No. In fact, Tim Levine's research indicates that experts, such as professional interrogators, perform well below average in detecting deception when the sender is mismatched. If you're a good liar, you are more likely to convince the professional interrogator sitting across the table from you than you are to fool the woman who cuts your hair, precisely because the interrogator, unlike your hairstylist, has been trained to diligently tally up all those truth cues. Like so many of us, the jurors McGinnis quoted had a naive confidence in their ability to detect lies and the various professional investigators, interrogators, interviewers, and the like who scrutinized McDonald's affect over the years, vigilant for the faintest sign of deception, they were likely even worse than those jurors. It's tempting to conclude that if the professionals thought McDonald was lying about the night of the murders, he was probably telling the truth. But such an inference would of course be unjustified. And so we wind up back where we started. When the smoke of all the half-baked psychologizing clears, all that is left is the evidence. As Jim Blackburn would tell the jurors, things do not lie, but people can and do. Indeed. With the fame pajama-topped out the window, what other things might point to McDonald's guilt? Let's turn to Jim Blackburn again. We are listening now to his closing statement to the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that you could throw
2: out the whole shooting match except for two pieces of evidence. I think you could just hold on to two. This club and this pajama top. Why are they so important? Well, you remember the defendant said that he hadn't seen this club until April 6th, and he didn't think that this was the club
0: that he was hit with. The club, the knives, the ice pit were outside the door. For context, investigators found several weapons behind the McDonald's residence on the morning of the murders. A wooden club and, about 20 feet away from it, an ice pick and pocket knife, which had been tossed beneath a bush. They also found a paring knife in the master bedroom, which McDonald said was sticking out of Colette's chest when he first saw her prone body, and which he had pulled out and thrown aside. Also, taking McDonald's story on board for a moment, there was a missing weapon— A second club, which was smoother and more like a baseball bat than the wooden club found outside. Back to Blackburn's closing statement, which we will now hear the remainder of. He didn't go outside the door,
2: but he went to it. The club had A and AB blood on it, and had two little blue threads on it, which matched identically the threads from his pajama top. It sort of sounds minor, really, until you think about something. How did they get there? If he never touched the club, if he never saw it, if the pajama top was not taken off his body until this club was already out the door, then how in the name of all that is reasonable did they walk out the door and get on the club and stick to it? I suggest from the evidence that there is an explanation, and that is that this club was not outside the back door until after that pajama top. Dropped threads and yarns and blood to the floor and as the club fell on the floor, it picked up the threads and it picked up the yarns with the blood and then it was thrown out the door. Ladies and gentlemen, I have talked to you a long time about all this type of evidence, but what does it mean? How could this have happened? We know from the evidence that the defendant, as we have said before, was a good doctor. We know that his family loved him. We know that from Valentine cards. We know from the card that he read from the witness stand shortly before the end of direct examination that Colette loved him very much. I suggest to you, however, that what the defense tried to do is prove the defendant's love and character through Colette and not through himself. We know that the defendant had been unfaithful in his marriage. We know that he worked the weekend before. He was perhaps tired. We know from the evidence that there was, and maybe it is a minor problem, the problem of Kristen coming to bed. We know that he, according to his story, went to bed late that night and found that the bed was wet. I am not by any stretch of the imagination suggesting that the slaughter took place over any one thing. I don't think so. But I think you can infer from the evidence that a fight developed in the master bedroom between Colette and the defendant. A struggle. An altercation. We know that Colette was bruised. Perhaps she was struck. You know those words, Daddy, 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 Daddy. I believe those words were said, but not from fear of intruders. I think you can infer from the evidence that they were set as Kimberly came to the master bedroom to find out what was going on between her father and mother. We know that she was there. We know from the evidence that her blood was found on the sheet, on the floor, and in the hall. We suggest perhaps that Colette, in an attempt to save herself or to fight back, got the old dull Geneva forge knife and perhaps struck the defendant. I suggest that the defendant, perhaps in a frenzy, perhaps mad, perhaps disgusted, perhaps exhausted, he knew that he was going to be away for 30 days in March, if he could, while his wife was six or seven months pregnant. The defendant, in one tragic brief moment, so brief, lost control and came back with that club. And as he did, he struck Kimberly and struck his wife. At that point, ladies and gentlemen, future is at stake, maybe too late at that point to undo that which is done. You know how hard it is to unring the bell. You know the words, Jeff, 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 why are they doing this to me? Think how close that is to Jeff, 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 why are you doing this to me? After Kimberly was struck, We suggest that she was picked up and carried back to her room and struck with this club again. And the Colette went to protect her or to see what was happening to Kristen. And while she was in there, Colette was struck again and carried back to the master bedroom. Then, of course, things had simply gone beyond repair. You can't go back and make the family happy again, drink liqueur and watch Johnny Carson. It has gone too far. An old hickory paring knife was located, and that knife was taken, and Colette MacDonald was stabbed sixteen times, and Kimberly was stabbed in the neck at least eight to ten times. I think you can infer from the evidence that, you know, you remember the Esquire magazine and the words in it, the Manson-type murders, and a multiplicity of weapons equaling a multiplicity of people. An ice pick was obtained, and Kristen was stabbed with the ice pick after she had already been stabbed with a knife. You remember the testimony of the C.I.D. agent who interviewed the defendant in the hospital on the morning of the murders, and who said that he became incoherent and confused when he talked about Kristen. Kristen was so hard to talk about. Perhaps that was because it was the most cold to do. A defenseless little girl. Kimberly and Colette had perhaps been struck while he was angered, but not Kristen. Well, you know, there is no such thing as perfect murder. The pajama top was probably already on Colette's chest, and I think you can find from the evidence that the defendant forgot it was there and made that terrible mistake of stabbing Colette with the ice pick through that blue pajama top, and that is how those holes got there. He didn't know at that time that four years later the FBI would figure out that 48 can match 21. I believe that the weapons, the old hickory knife and the ice pick, were wiped off on the bath mat. Now, do irrational and irresponsible, drug-crazed people wipe off weapons and then throw them outside to be found by investigators? Why did he say that the Geneva Forge knife was pulled out of the chest of Colette, even though Paul Stonbaugh testified that, in his opinion, that knife was dull and did not make any of the cuts in her clothing? Remember, he said, don't forget that I pulled the knife out of her chest. I suggest that you could find from the evidence that he did that, because he didn't know what was on that knife, and he had to have an explanation for why it was there. He forgot to throw that one out. I suggest that the Geneva Forge knife didn't kill anybody. If he pulled it out of her chest, why does the evidence suggest that there was no significant amount of blood on that knife? Perhaps because it didn't go in that chest. It nicked the defendant's arm. I believe that the surgical gloves were then taken, I think you can find from the evidence, and used to write the word pig on the headboard. The self-infliction of one injury was made, the story was concocted, the MPs were called, and he lay down next to his wife to wait for help. (sighs) You know... The defendant had a a lot of nice character testimony. And I'm sure that each of you, if you were accused of a crime, would have the same. But don't ever forget that perhaps the greatest crime of all was committed 2,000 years ago. And the night before Christ was betrayed, Judas Iscariot would have had 12 of the best character witnesses this world has ever known to have said he couldn't have done it. But you know that he did. Ladies and gentlemen, if in the future, after this case is over, you should think of it again, I ask you to think and to remember Colette, Kimberly, and Krista. They've been dead for almost 10 years. That is right now around 3,400 or 3,500 days and nights that you and I have had and the defendant has had, that they haven't. They would have liked to have had those. And so if in the future you should say a prayer, say one for them. If in the future you should light a candle, light one for them. If in the future you should cry a tear, cry one for them. We ask for nothing in the name of persecution. We ask for nothing in the name of harassment. We ask for nothing in the name of what is wrong. Nothing. But God, we ask everything in the name of what is right and in the name of what is just. That is why we are here. We ask everything in the name of truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is horribly tragic and horribly sad. As you know, because you have seen Mrs. Kassab and you have seen Mrs. McDonald and it is sad for both of them. Both of them were grandmothers, not just one. And it is sad for the defendant. But it is sad most of all for those who paid the highest price of all with their lives. And so we ask you, ladies and gentlemen, to return a verdict of guilty as to clubbing and stabbing Colette, guilty of clubbing and stabbing Kimberly and guilty, perhaps most of all, of stabbing little Christian. You remember, I am sure you've heard it many times, part of the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. Surely God did not intend the 17th of February, 1970, for Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen MacDonald to die. It is time, ladies and gentlemen, it is so late in the day. It is time that someone speak for justice and truth and return a verdict of guilty against this man.
0: It was a powerful statement, a powerful narrative, a story of tragedy and evil, and of a belated balancing of the scales of justice. But let us not take our eye off the ball, the evidence. Remember what Blackburn said at the start. You could throw out all but two pieces of evidence, the club and the pajama top. Let's take them in reverse order. We have seen that the evidentiary value of the pajama top was nil, but it is still worth considering something. Why would Macdonald have draped his pajama top over Colette's chest and then stabbed her through it? Take a minute to consider that question. You see, there is no obvious answer. Macdonald, on the prosecution's theory, wanted to make it look like Colette had been repeatedly stabbed by intruders. So you could see why he would repeatedly stab her with an ice pick. But again, why do so through his own pajama top? Blackburn offered the ad-hoc explanation that McDonald must have forgotten that he'd lain the top over Colette. In his closing statement, Brian Murtaugh offered the following. We have the stabbing through the pajama top, which we contend serves two functions. One, he had to have some puncture holes in it, we would argue, to be consistent with his own story. Two, he had already, we submit, placed it on Colette's body because it had become soaked with Colette's blood and the only explanation consistent with his innocence would be the one that he came up with. I put it on top of her. You may notice that neither of these rationales made sense. Murtaugh claimed that MacDonald stabbed Colette through his pajama top because the resulting holes would conform to his story about the intruders pulling the top over his head and then stabbing at him through it. But this was backwards. Remember, there were no intruders, according to Murtaugh. Rather than stabbing Colette through the pajama top to support his story, MacDonald could have spared himself the trouble by simply telling a different story. He was making it all up anyway, after all. Likewise with Murtaugh's second speculation, that since Colette's blood was on his top, he needed an explanation for that. As Errol Morris observes, MacDonald was already covered in blood. His torn pajama bottoms, which were thrown away at Wilmack Army Hospital, were covered in blood. If he was already covered in blood... Murtaugh's explanation makes no sense. If he had stabbed Colette through his pajama top, and there is no evidence that he did, wouldn't he understand that he was leaving incriminating evidence? So, not only was the pajama top forensically useless, but the prosecution's own story concerning it was incoherent. Let's turn to the club. What was it about the club that so definitively tied it to McDonald? Recall that Blackburn claimed it had two little blue threads on it which matched identically the threads from McDonald's pajama top. And why was that so incriminating? Because, Blackburn explained to the jurors, McDonald claimed never to have come into contact with the club. His story was that he was attacked in the living room by intruders wielding a knife, ice pick, and possibly baseball bat. They knocked him unconscious. He came to and walked down the hallway to the master bedroom where he removed his pajama top and placed it over Colette. If the club had, by then, been dropped outside by one of the fleeing assailants, then there was never an opportunity for McDonald's pajama top to have come into contact with it and it should therefore not have been carrying fibers from his pajama top. This is already pretty weak gruel, given the circumstances of the murders as McDonald related them. He was attacked in the dark by multiple assailants, one of them could have had the club and MacDonald, in the confusion, not have registered that fact. MacDonald had also lain unconscious in the hallway. The club wielder might have come into contact with him then, or just gone into the hallway and picked up fibers from there, where investigators, despite the government's later claim, did report seeing them. But set all that aside, Murtaugh and Blackburn were, again, keeping something from the court, from the defense, and the judge, and the jury the two little blue threads were not the only debris found on the club. When the FBI examined the same debris that the CID had, they located two black wool fibers, and the club wasn't the only place where black wool fibers were found. They were also found in Colette's mouth and on her pajama top, and, critically, nowhere else. That is, investigators could not locate anything in the McDonald home that matched the black wool fibers, that could have been the source of them. There was thus a strong prima facie case that the person who murdered Colette was wearing black wool. And if that was true, then the murderer was not Jeffrey McDonald. And so, if we are to take Blackburn's suggestion and throw the whole shooting match away, we are going to have to throw the pajama top and club away too. And what does that leave us with? Nothing. No credible evidence that Jeffrey McDonald murdered his family. all that is left is for us to take a step back and then re-engage with the case facts, this time from a conscientiously historical perspective. Given the physical evidence and the original investigator's failure to properly handle and preserve it, Jeffrey McDonald should never have been convicted or even tried. The case went to trial because a dishonest government prosecutor lied to both a grand jury and several psychiatric experts and was believed. And McDonald was convicted at trial because still more dishonest government prosecutors suppressed exculpatory evidence and had the judge in their pocket. McDonald was railroaded. But that doesn't mean he was innocent. To come to some reasonable judgment on that matter, we need now to look at the murders through a historical lens and try to piece together the facts as we know them in the manner that makes the most sense of them. That's next time on The Looking Glass.